This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This is God's word. Uh, Friends, just some preliminaries uh, would be a good idea for us all, I think. Um, First of all, this is, I need to warn you up up front, Uh, this is uh, probably the longest talk of the five. And uh, so, but the good thing is you're fresh, aren't you? (laughs) Um, So it is the longest. Uh, but we should be able to finish it in the time, so that that's okay. Uh, also, uh, this is a favourite passage in the Bible for me, um, and so that's a good thing for you. That will mean uh, that we'll enjoy it together. Um, and uh, I guess the, the third thing is we've got a lot to cover. So I would encourage you to be uh, keeping your eye on your Bible, to have it open and so on. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you 
that you have given us your word that we might know your son. And Father, we pray today that as we come to this scripture where you tell us who you are and what you are like, that you would reach deep into our hearts, reveal to us the glories of yourself and your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, I want to begin this uh, talk this evening by getting you to do some reflecting on famous and infamous people. Uh, just think about them for a moment. Let's uh, start with a man who's perhaps the best known uh, man of Singapore. I want you to think about Lee Kuan Yew. Um, I want you to think about everything that you know about Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, that is, what makes him famous or what made him famous? What distinguished him from all, the, all other Singaporeans? Uh, how would you describe him? Could you be able to do it? Uh, if you came across someone who'd never heard of him, what, you might, what might you say about Lee Kuan Yew? If you were asked to, asked to write a few words um, that might go on a plaque or perhaps a tombstone commemorating him, what would you say on that tombstone? If someone wanted to learn more about him, uh, where would you direct them to go? Uh, what could they watch? What places could they visit in Singapore? Where could they learn more about Lee Kuan Yew? Uh, now, let's think of someone who is not so, so much famous, but infamous. Okay, think about uh, Adolf Hitler, for example. What do you know about Adolf Hitler? What makes Hitler's name so well known? What distinguished him from other human beings? How would you describe him from what you know? If you came across someone who'd never heard of him, what would you say about Adolf Hitler? If you were asked to give two sentences that would summarise him, what would the two sentences be? If someone wanted to see him in action, as it were, or see his deeds portrayed somewhere, where would you direct them to go? What could they watch? What places in the world could they visit where they would see the results of his work? And then third person, what about you? What makes you who you are? What is it that distinguishes you? How would others describe you? If you were, if you were asked to write a few words for your own tombstone, what would they be? What would you say? What if someone wanted to see you in action? Where would you direct them to go and what could they look at? And lastly, I want you to think about God. What is the God of the Bible like? What makes our God the God that he is? What distinguishes him from every other God? How would you describe him? If you were to tell one story from the Bible that captured our God, what would it be? Friends, the passage that we are looking at tonight is one of the key Old Testament passages in terms of understanding God. It describes God in two ways. First, it tells a story about him. And second, it contains some brief sentences where God describes himself to someone else. So it's a magic scripture, isn't it, in that sense? It's just full of good things. A story about God and statements by God about himself. And both what 
that both the story and the sentences agree with what they say. You could almost, this is a great thing, you could almost summarise it in one word and at the end of tonight you will know one Hebrew word that you could use to describe God. One Hebrew word. I'm going to teach you how to pronounce it and you'll be able to do it. And then I won't have to keep describing what it means the rest of these three days. Okay? So today we are going to learn some key things about God and we're going to find out what makes God special. What makes God tick, as it were? What distinguishes him from every other so-called God? It's an exciting prospect, so let's get underway. Okay, open your Bibles at chapter 32 of Exodus and let's start with the story. Now, the story stretches all the way from Exodus 32 right the way through to Exodus 33 and even goes on into Exodus 34, the first six verses or so. They are long chapters, so let me see if I can summarise them for you. Let's try and remember the storyline. Remember the storyline? The book of Exodus began with God's people under the cruel rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. They cried out to God, and God heard the cry of his people, and he saw their trouble, and he came down, he said, to rescue them. And he did so by appointing Moses and performing a series of spectacular signs and wonders the plagues of Egypt. The last one of those wonders occurred when they marched through the Red Sea as though it were dry land. And when Pharaoh's armies tried to follow, you remember what happened, uh, the sea just swallowed them up. And God brought them to Mount Sinai. And God at Mount Sinai, Sinai the place of God, met with them. And he entered into covenant with them. And the covenant was accepted in a ritual, in a blood ritual described in chapter 24 of Exodus. And what God was saying was, you're going to be my special treasure, Israel. You will obey my word. And they said, we will. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And the elders of Israel then went part way up the mountain and the text says they actually saw God. Then the glory of the Lord settled on the top of Mount Sinai. And it looked as though the whole mountaintop was being consumed and covered with fire. And God then beckoned Moses to come up into the cloud and the fire. And he did. And he stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights where he received the 10 words from God, which uh, we are told were written with the hand of God, with the finger of God. And you can see that in Exodus 24, verses 12 to 18. This 12, 10 words was a declaration of the exclusive relationship that existed between God and Israel. It was a display of his character. It was a description of the moral and religious life that would be part of his people. And that brings us to chapter 32. In between chapter 24 and 32, God's told them how to build the tabernacle. And then after the events we look at tonight, they actually do build it. So we're in the middle of the description of building the tabernacle and then actually doing it. So let's have a look at the story. In verse 1, have a look at it there in chapter 32. We hear that Moses was delayed up on top of the mountain. The people begin to wonder whether something has happened to him. Perhaps they even wonder about God. And so they ask Aaron to make gods for them. And you can see that in verse 1. Can you see it? They gather around Aaron and they say to him, 
are up. Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. In other words, they think he's, he's up there somewhere. Who knows what he's doing? But we're down here. Verse 2 says that Aaron gets them to pull their gold ornaments. He says, you know, take your gold and give it to me. And then he fashions the gold into an idol in the shape of a calf. And they then proclaim that this is the God who brought them up out of Egypt. Look at verse 4. There are a number of things to notice. You see, up until this point, Moses has been their point of contact with God. So when Moses has apparently gone, they think, well, without Moses, we need a replacement. And in verse 1, we heard that it, they, them say that it was Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Remember that? And now I want you to look carefully at verse 4 and look at what they say. Look carefully. Israel replaces Moses. Instead, they speak of your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. No longer Moses, but the calves. In my view, at its heart, this is an idolatrous act. The golden calf represents them moving away from Moses as their mediator, but more importantly, it's a move away from worshipping God as he'd revealed himself to be worshipped. Israel has said, no, we're going to replace the real God with an image. In Romans, Paul talks about it with this language. He says, they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and exchange it for the glory and exchange the immortal God for an image. Now look at verse 5. Aaron builds an altar and announces this great celebration. And in verse 7, the scene changes. We move from the base of the mountain with the people to the top of the mountain where God is with Moses. And God tells Moses what is going on down below. He's up in the clouds. He can't see. He doesn't know. And God says, this is what's happening down there. And he tells Moses that what he's inclined to do is to wipe them out in his anger and push ahead with just Moses. But take a closer look at what God says. The people are no longer described as his people. Did you see that? hear that in the text earlier on? They're no longer God's people. Instead they are, look at it, verse 7, your people, Moses, that is your people whom you brought up. Now you and I think, oh, hang on a moment, God's, God said he brought them up. But no, look at what God says. He's saying they've broken covenant with me. In verse 19, Moses will emphatically express this later because he'll take those ten, those tablets and he'll throw them to the ground and break them, signifying covenant is broken. But there's one more thing to notice in those verses. Look at verse 9. Look at how they are described. They are a stiff-necked people. This is the very first time in Scripture that term is used of the people of God. Later on, they will be called uncircumcised of heart. Hard of heart. What will be the outcome of all of this? Well, God's clear. Look at verse 10. He says this. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath might burn against them, and I may consume them in order that I, make, I may make a great nation of you. You see what God's saying? He's saying, uh, look, let's forget about them. We'll just go ahead with you, Moses. 
Let me say that in my view, the first words of this verse represent a small ray of hope. In my version of the Bible, and I'll try and swap to yours overnight, I think most of you are using NIV, is that correct? I'm using the ESV, but I'm very happy with the NIV, so I'll try and swap between now and tomorrow morning for you. Um, look at what God says. In my version, he says, let me alone. But Moses is not going to let God alone. He's horrified. And he chooses to remain and intercede for the people. And he argues two things up front. First, in verse 11, should God save Israel only then to turn around and destroy them? Look at what he says. O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought? Notice what he said. Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Second, look at verse 12. Why should he give the Egyptians a chance to gloat? Why should the Egyptians say, well, with evil intent did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn your burning anger, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Then in verse 12, he, he, turn, he begs God to turn away his anger. He pleads with him to remember the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And after all, he says, this whole thing began back in chapter 2 with God remembering the covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So how can he forget it now? Moses urges God to be consistent with what he knows of him. He urges God to relent on the basis of covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to whom he'd sworn an oath, an oath by his very own self. Now, friends, let me tell you just a little bit about what's going on here. First, the words to turn from is often used in scripture for repentance. Second, the word relent here means to feel pain or regret at something. So therefore it has the sense of relent or change of mind. So the combination of these words to repent and relent is very, very strong from Moses. Moses is saying to God, God, I want a deep change in you. I want a change of decision from you. This is very bold, isn't it? Would you have the courage to say that to God? I want a change of mind here. It's audacious. It's on the edge of being blunt toward God. However, Moses has lots of grounds for his request. First, God has brought him into his presence in a way that he's brought no other person into his presence. Later on, Scripture will say, he's the only man who's looked God face to face. Second, he has made it clear in his actions that he is a God of his word. That is, God has made it clear he's a God of his word. And he gave a covenant word to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so Moses is just saying to him, fulfill your word. Third thing is, Moses knows that remembering this covenant is what brought Israel to this place. Because remember back in chapter 2, he remembered the covenant. He knows that why Israel is here is because God has remembered covenant. So he's just asking him to remember it again. Anyway, the bold bluntness of Moses pays off. Have a look at verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring his people upon his people the disaster he had threatened. In other words, 
God listens to Moses and God changes his mind. He relents from wiping out his people. However, the rest of the chapter is clear that a sin has been committed and a severe, con- a severe consequences will still follow. The anger of God at sin may not result in the end of Israel, but it will be expressed in a lesser judgment. You see, friends, sin still has consequences. We see it here in this chapter. A number of people from Israel die at the hand of Moses and the tribe of Levi as God's judgment. And others die because God sends a plague as judgment. But he doesn't wipe out the nation. And he does relent from what he had said to Moses. He turns back from it. He does remain committed to his people and the promises made to Abraham. But now let's turn to chapter 33. When we do, we notice there's still some outstanding issues here. Can you see what they are? Let's see how they're dealt with. The first issue is there in verse 1. Throughout the book of Moses, God has referred to his people, the people of Israel, as my people. In Exodus 32, they sinned against him and broke covenant. Now look at how God identifies Israel here in chapter 33. Can you see it? It's in verse 1. It's no longer my people. That's what it's been all the way through the book. And now it is the people. Not mine, the people people. No longer are they the ones God brought up out of Egypt. They are those Moses brought up out of Egypt. However, they are still the inheritors of the oath made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In other words, God is still their God, but the covenant has been breached. It's broken by sin. In other words, yeah, so the problem is emphasised by verse 2. Have a look. God does not promise to go with Israel. You see, God does not even promise that the angel of God will go with them. He's been with them in in chapter 14, verse 9, but not, not, not any longer. All he promises is that an angel will go before them. And then in verse 3, he makes himself clear. He will not go with them, for he cannot go with them. They are sinful by nature and further sin in his presence would only incur further judgment. And in verse 4 we're told of the people's reaction. Can you see it? They are shattered. Then they are told to strip off their ornaments which were reminders of the golden trinkets they made into a calf. From now on they'll be without ornaments and false gods. They've got to leave them behind. That's it. Now all they would, and they would also be without the immediate presence of God with his angel. Now let's move to verse 7. Have a look. Back in Exodus 25 to 31, God had given Moses instructions about building a tabernacle. The tabernacle would be the symbol of the abiding presence of God amongst his people. But the tabernacle has not yet been built. But Moses has an alternative. He has a tent pitched outside the camp of the Israelites and it's a sort of private tent of meeting with God. There are no priests, no cult, no ritual, simply a place where Moses can meet with God. I want you to try and imagine what this would look like. Imagine uh, you are the Israelites. Okay, imagine for a moment I'm Moses. Okay, I I sit with you most of the day. Okay, I sit with you most of the day, I spend my time with you. 
or I'm up on the mountain, wherever I am. And then at some time of the day, you're in the host of all of Israel. And I, Moses, go walking up over here, my little tent. That represents the presence of God, and I talk to God. What is that saying to you? It says you don't have any access to God, and he does. God is his God, and he's not yours. In the same sense, can you see what's happening? It's a very, it's a very non-verbal communication of a very potent thing. It's a place where Moses can, in the sight of all the people, God would come to him and speak to him. They are without the presence of God, is what is being said. But Moses is immersed in the presence of God, and there in the tent, God would speak to Moses face to face. Where Israel was isolated, alienated from God, God would come to Moses and speak to him face to face, we're told later on, as a friend speaks with another. Verse 12 gives us an example of the sort of face-to-face conversation that might have occurred between God and Moses. And the one that is recorded takes up the very issue of God's presence. Moses starts by remembering that he's the one to whom God says, I know you by name and have found favour in your sight. And the only other person, do you know, in the whole of the Old Testament who is said to find... Well, you tell me. Who is the only other person in the Old Testament who is said to have found favour with God? Can you remember anyone? Noah. Noah is the only one. Apart from Noah, it's Moses. No one else in the Old Testament is said to know God, though, by name. The relationship between Moses and God is very special. And on the basis of this relationship, Moses asks God for a special consideration. First, he says, I want to know your ways. Look at verse 13, that's where he says it. In other words, he says, I want to understand just who it is that you really are. I want to know your essential personality. I want to know what makes you who you are. He desires a full understanding of what it is that guides what God does in his world, what controls the way he works, what lies at the core of his being. This is the very first thing Moses wants to know, God's ways. But there's a second thing he wants from God. Can you see it in these verses? He wants God to remember that Israel is his people. In other words, Moses wants God to restore a relationship with Israel. He wants God to be their God and them to be his people again. And in verse 14, God responds and he neatly answers Moses' first desire. He says, I'll go with you, Moses, and I'll give you rest. But Moses says, no, no, implies, no, I want more. And in verse 15, he spells it out. He doesn't want God to go with him, Moses, He wants God to go with us, Israel. And in verse 17, God agrees incredibly. God says, And the Lord said to Moses, The very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. He doesn't do it on Israel's behalf, but on Moses' behalf. Not because of Israel. No, it's because he's pleased with Moses and knows Moses by name. By the way, I should say Moses has not won everything he wanted to get off God. 
You see, while God has repeatedly spoken of my people up until the golden calf incident, do you know what? He never again in the book of Exodus speaks of the Israelites as my people. He will do it again in Leviticus, but never again in Exodus. Anyway, in verse 18, Moses puts a third request. He, he requests, I want to see your glory. In the Old Testament, God's glory is the thing that makes God shine. Okay, the thing that makes God shine. Moses is therefore asking to see God's very self. He's asking to see the very thing that makes God, God. Maybe he wants some physical demonstration of who God is and what makes God the way he is. Anyway, God's response is recorded in verse 19. God tells Moses that his goodness will be made to pass before him. But notice what God says. God's goodness will indeed pass before him, but that revelation that Moses will have is not something you see. It is something you hear. God will speak. He'll proclaim his name. And Moses will therefore not so much see what God looks like, he will hear what God is like. Isn't that amazing, you see? Friends, the Lord is a God who reveals himself how? Physically? No. By showing his face? No. By his word is how he does it. He gives his word. And so this deepest Old Testament revelation of God will come appropriately in the form of words. God says, I'll reveal myself to you. You can't see me. You might just get a glimpse of my back. But you'll hear some words, as it were. We've reached the end of chapter 33 now. Uh, this is the story of humans in action and the story of God in action. Let's see if we can summarise what we've learnt. Let's see if we can uh, first... What does it tell us? A sobering truth, doesn't it? It tells us humans are full of wickedness. Humans are full of wickedness. You see, they have just seen the most spectacular deliverance of a people that has been seen in human history. They have received ten words from God written by the finger of his own hand. They have just agreed that they will keep every word that God utters. But in less than 40 days, they have solidly broke the very first two, word, first two words, the first two commandments. Within 40 days. They have just shattered the relationship with God, formed, that he formed with them. And they've demonstrated they're no different from Adam and Eve. They're made of the same stuff, they're sinful rebels. But let's now turn to see what they, what we learn about God. What's the very first thing that this passage teaches us about God? It's that he is just. He's entered into relationship with his people. He's shown them what it means to be in relationship. And when they break relationship, he responds with justice. He rightly threatens to meet disobedience with judgment. His people freely volunteered that they would worship him. You should read the number of times in chapters 19, 20 and 24 that they say, whatever the Lord has said, we will do. They can't even last 40 days. 
At the very first opportunity, they replace him with something made of metal. And he's just and justly angry. But we learn something else about God here, don't we? We learn of his mercy and love that overcome his judgment. Moses knew it. He knew it. And he pressed God as much as he could. He pleaded with God to turn back from judgment. He sought for mercy to triumph over judgment. And God demonstrated this in his inclination. He relented from sending judgment. His love overwhelmed. And so there's what this story tells us about humans and God. Humans are sinful. God is just. But God is also a God whose love triumphs. Now before we go on, I need to spend just a moment talking about God relenting. Okay? You see, Scripture often talks about God relenting. So we need to understand what it means and how we think about it. Let me just run these things by you. So this is a more technical question because otherwise people will ask me it later on. Okay? So I'm going to tell you what I think about it. First, we must not dodge, or sorry, I'll use some Australian jargon here, dodge or fudge what is being said here. That is, God is not presented as pretending to relent in chapter 32. He's not pretending, he does it. Okay? Nor is relented, his relenting presented as anything less than what it actually is. I presume that means that if Moses had not interceded, then God would pro have proceeded with what he was going to do. That's what Psalm 106 verse 23 says. You might like to jot it down and look it up later on. Psalm 106 verse 23. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying him? Do you see what the psalmist is saying? He would have gone had not Moses stood there. Second thing to say. My observation is that in nearly every case where God changes his mind about a future action, it is because, either because someone has changed their actions, that is, they've stopped doing what they were doing, or because someone else has interceded on behalf of the guilty party. Okay? Third... Whatever else this relenting shows, it shows that God takes Moses into account in his actions. Doesn't it? So he hears what he says and he responds to what he says and he does what he says. If Moses had done nothing, presumably God would have done what he said. So how does this all interact with God's sovereignty and foreknowledge? I'm not sure that I know. And I'm not sure that scripture ever describes how it works. But I know I must hold all those things to be true. That's okay. Let's let God be God and we can just be humans. Okay? However, if you wish, perhaps you could talk about it in your discussion groups later on. <laughs> anyway, with that in mind, I want to go to chapter 34, which is where we've been heading. Remember where we are. Moses has said, show me your glory. Show me what makes you shine. What makes you exceptional, God? And God agrees. 
And he tells Moses in verse 19 that he'll make all his goodness pass before Moses and he will proclaim his name. In other words, he'll disclose his character. So if you disclose your name in the ancient world, you disclose your character. And that's what happens in chapter 34. Moses cuts two more stone tablets representing the covenant and he goes back up the mountain and God comes down in a cloud again. And he reveals his name and his character. And look at verses 6 and 7. They are the famous words that he announces as he passes before Moses. And they are these. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Generation is not actually there in the Hebrew text, but I think it's the right interpretation. I want you to notice what these verses actually say. Look at them very carefully. I want you to let these words imprint themselves on your memory. You see, these verses capture God's nature revealed in the golden calf. Look closely at what it says. First of all, you'll see that they use the special name for God, Yahweh. Remember, God has revealed himself as Yahweh back in chapter 3. Second, they tell us that the Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He does punish sin, but the contrast is, shows his love to thousands of generations, but just to two or three generations does he show judgment. His judgment on sin is restricted to just a few. I wonder if you can hear what God is telling us about himself. His nature is overwhelmingly on the side of love, mercy and forgiveness. It's three to a thousand. That is a thousand to three, in fact. He may punish sin, but his judgment is his strange work. Isaiah says it's his alien work. He must do it because he's just. But if there's a way out of judgment, he will take it. His nature, you see, is to have mercy and to exercise steadfast love. God's people here in Exodus know this because they just experienced it. God had every right to totally destroy them, but he didn't. He relented concerning judgment. And in the closing verses of of chapter 34, he shows this by remaking the covenant. Despite their sinful nature, he'll remain their God and they'll be his people. Now, you can summarise all of this in one word. I told you at the beginning we might do that. Okay, I want to teach you a Hebrew word. Look at uh, those verses again. And I want you to look at verse 6. God says that he abounds in steadfast love, in my version. Now in verse 7, have a look. Again, God says that he keeps or maintains steadfast love. Now the word here for love is a Hebrew word. It's my favourite Hebrew word. You've got to pronounce it at the back of your throat. It's pronounced with a guttural. It's pronounced this way, chesed. Chesed. Okay? It means God's unexpected, surprising, 
unobligated mercy and love. It's said twice. Now skim through this, these two verses and see if any other word stands out apart from and or something like that. Any other word stands out as having been repeated twice. By the way, kesed, just have a look for that word. You should be able to see it. It's fairly obvious. But kesed is what you get from God when you least expect it. It's what Israel got from God in the golden calf incident. It's God's unexpected, surprising, unobligated mercy and love. Did you see the other word repeated twice? It's a name. Let me try and put the four of them together, the two repeated words, Yahweh, Yahweh, Kesed, Kesed. Can you hear it? Yahweh, Yahweh, Kesed, Kesed. Hear my name twice, hear the core of my character twice. I am steadfast love. I am unexpected, surprising, unobligated mercy and kindness. Kesed, Kesed. Yahweh, Yahweh, Kesed, Kesed. Friends, this story, this statement about God, this word which summarises God's character, shaped Israel's understanding of God. It shaped Israel's understanding of God. Time and time again in the Old Testament, they remember what happened here. And they quote this statement or they allude to it or they just utter the word kesed and they hang on it and they rely on it. So open up your Bibles to the prophet Micah. Now, someone's, uh, yeah, Micah, you can look up in the, in the index, but it's in that sort of minor prophets there. Have a look at Micah in Micah 7.18. Micah 7.18, he says this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Now, that's, that's Exodus, isn't it? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in what? Steadfast love, Kesed. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and kesed to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Now a similar thing happens in Jonah, but since we're going to look at it tomorrow, I'm going to keep that up my sleeve. But let me put it to you another way. Exodus 32 is the background to Exodus 34. Having seen Exodus 32, Moses will understand Exodus 34. If God is Exodus 34, as he declares himself to be, what will he do in Exodus 32? He will relent from sending disaster. If he is Yahweh, Yahweh, Kesed, Kesed, then we won't be surprised if he does Exodus 32 and relents from sending disaster. Now, let's think about the New Testament. You see, if I'm right, if I'm right, if this steadfast love is at the core of God's character, 
then you'd expect to see it appear in the New Testament, wouldn't you? Because he's the same God. And we do. Now, obviously, the word doesn't occur because the New Testament's written in Greek rather than Hebrew. But the idea is absolutely everywhere. Let's think of some examples. Do you remember the parable of the lost son? Luke 15. Man has a son who persuades his father to give him his inheritance before he dies. Basically, the son's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And Dad gives him his, his inheritance. He sells it off. And he spends it on loose living. And in the end, it's all gone and the son is destitute. And then he remembers his father. And he remembers the generosity of his father. And so he decides he'll go home. And as he nears home, it's clear that his father has been keeping an eye open to see if his son's going to return. And he sees his son from a distance. And he's so overwhelmed for his son that he does a very undignified thing for an old man in that society. I want you to imagine I've got a long frock. He lifts his skirts and he runs. He runs out to meet his son, showing his legs. (laughs) Undignified thing for an old man to do. His love shows himself in welcoming back his son and throwing a party for him. Friends, God is like that father. And every one of us who's Christian knows that that's what he's like because we have sinned against God. We know we deserve judgment, but God met our sin with grace. In a surprising act of mercy, he sent his son to take our sin upon himself on the cross. And on the cross, God's mercy triumphed over judgment, didn't it? And on the cross, God showed himself to be the God of Hesed. He acted in unexpected, unobligated, surprising mercy and love. Although we had sinned against our maker and deserved only his judgment, God acted. Although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they can now be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is available in his son. In the cross, God's mercy triumphed over judgment. Now, if I can just put a few further things just in place to end our evening. You've done very well sticking with me, those of you who have, and that's most of you, I think, but let's try and sum this up. This disposition is at the very heart also of Christian mission, isn't it? You see, if God is like this, then he will welcome sinners from every nation on earth, won't he? And those who know him and who have experienced his grace will be overwhelmed by it and they'll want everyone on earth to know it. And they will not only go into all the world, they won't go into all the world by obligation, no, they'll go because they have been overwhelmed by the grace of God and cannot but speak of what they've seen and heard. Friends, God's character of love and grace flows into every area of Christian existence. When we sin yet again and confess our sin, what does God do? He says, my son, my daughter, I forgive because of my son. 
He acts with grace and he forgives us. In his grace, he gives us gifts to serve our brothers and sisters that we don't deserve. In his grace, he hears our prayers and gives us more than we could ask or imagine. As we approach his throne boldly in prayer, he gives us grace to help in our time of need. In his grace, he uses our weakness for his glory. In his grace, he gives us the gifts of family life. It's by his grace that he indwells us by his Holy Spirit. And do you realise the enormity of that, that God dwells in us and that we sit with his Son in the heavenly places? Friends, our God is a God of overwhelming love and grace. And that's what we commemorate when we say the grace together, isn't it? When we say to each other, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. And God's character of merciful grace is the guarantee of our future, you see. Well, friends, the day will come when we die or when history ends. And on that day, we will find ourselves, surprisingly, in the very presence of God, just as ancient Israelites found themselves surprisingly accompanied by God's presence in the Exodus. We'll stand before God's throne, clothed with white garments. By God's grace, death will be defeated and we'll live with him forever. God's grace gave us salvation and God's grace justified us. And God's grace made us heirs of eternal life, gave us something we never deserved. Can you hear what I'm saying? I'm saying that the story of the cross is the outworking of the nature of God we see in Exodus 32 to 34. What do you call it when you get to the New Testament? What words do you use for it? Love and grace, aren't they? They're the equivalents of that Old Testament word, Kesed. We are people overwhelmed by God's unexpected, surprising love and mercy. This character of our God undergirds our past, our present, and will form our future. That's the message to take home tonight and the thing to talk about amongst each other. Our God is this God, and we know him supremely to be this way because of the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this revelation so early on in the history of your people. That this is your character. And Father, we thank you that we have seen it far more than Moses could ever have imagined. In the gift of your son. And in his death for us. We thank you for this. We thank you for this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.